Osprey Oriel Lake is the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, WECAN International, dedicated to accelerating a global women's climate justice movement. She works nationally and internationally with grassroots and indigenous leaders, policymakers, and scientists to promote climate justice, resilient communities, and a just transition to a decentralized, democratized energy future. She serves on the executive committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and as the co-director for the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation. Osprey is also the author of the award-winning book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Osprey Oriel Lake, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here with you. So we really can feel your respect for nature from your books and becoming founder of Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and your various projects around the world. Tell us how your journey began. When did you become aware that you would devote your life to these causes? Well, I think like a lot of young people, I'm very connected to nature and the natural world. I was very fortunate to grow up in a small town in Northern California on the coast of Mendocino County in the town of Mendocino. And that experience really led me to building a relationship with the natural world, particularly the ocean and the redwoods, the beautiful redwood trees that are the tallest trees in the world that are on the coast there. And at that time, there was and and still is quite a bit of, you know, deforestation going on with logging operations. And I quickly learned the contrast between having this incredible, beautiful place that I was privileged to grow up and at the same time see that the way that humanity is living right now in extractive industries and a very consumptive lifestyle was destroying the very places that I had come to love so dearly. So that really began my journey into questioning, you know, how are we living with the natural systems and why are we so out of balance and how we have become, you know, not an enhancing force with nature as a dominant society but one that is really very destructive to the natural systems. And I say the dominant society because, of course, there are many indigenous peoples around the world who are not in that worldview and have been fighting and struggling for decades and decades to protect the natural systems. Exactly. There's so much we can learn from them and how they have been stewards all along of the natural world. And I think feel that in a way that might be a kind of terminology that sounds even strange to them because they feel they are part of the natural world, but we dichotomize so much. Yeah, I've been really very fortunate to work very closely with a lot of Indigenous leaders and I've had a lot of Indigenous mentors over the years because in the process of this work of, of working to protect water, land, climate, and communities, that naturally has led me to Indigenous leadership because of their incredible care for the natural systems and their worldviews. And I will say that, you know, it's so important to highlight that 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth is in the lands and hands of Indigenous peoples. So I think we have a tremendous amount to learn from them about their stewardship, but also about their cultural life ways and things that we have really lost in our modern society. And I think it's so important that we have Indigenous values, Indigenous rights, and also understand wherever we live, we are living on Indigenous lands. 
And how can we really respect that those lands often have been stolen from indigenous peoples and really learn about the indigenous peoples in the communities where we live because they're continuing to work and struggle to, to protect their territories, their lands and uh, the forests and waters for, for all of us. Exactly. And really this concept that nature is part of culture, it's not separate, you know, how we have or we study ecology or we have earth law. Again, these are a lot of man-made systems. And I feel like, and you would know more about this, uh, and you addressed in uh, your first book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature, they're really two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. I think that whether we hold an embodied understanding that we are part and particle of nature. The fact is we are. And even if our modern social constructs have created this ideology and narrative of humans being separate from the natural world, that might be something we hold in our head. It is certainly not the case. We, we are a part of nature and, you know, without we, it could take hours and hours to go through a lot of the research I've done and many, many, many scholars and authors have done to explore, you know, exactly at what point did this split happen in the nature-human dialogue occur and why that occurred. And of course, it's a very deep and important discourse, which is also the topic of my book. And I explore it further in a book that I'm working on now, because I do think it's important that we, we understand the root causes of a lot of the challenges that we face today from the climate crisis to environmental degradation to also the social ills that come from a sense of disconnection from nature. So there's a wide range of, of reasons that we really need to understand the root causes of a lot of our social ills and environmental ills as well. And I think we need to continue to come back to this question of how we heal this imposed divide between the natural world and human social constructs. And that healing is, is key to how we're going to really unwind the perilous moment that we face right now. It's not the only component, but I think it's a central component is how do we reconnect with the natural world, not just intellectually, but in a very embodied way. Yes. And I really like this idea that what is good in us or what is happy or harmonious in us is when we are really in, in touch with nature. And the other things are when we are trying to be something other than what we are, it leads to the unhappiness or maybe the need to try to fill up the uh, something missing in us with consumerism. And it's, it's just really important. It seems so simple, but to remember that mother nature is nature is life. Every breath uh, we take, every drop we drink, every bite we eat, that's all nature. So we owe everything to it. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I've learned from a lot of indigenous leaders that I've had the honor to spend time with is a really renewing this understanding that we're all relatives that the water and the forest and the air and the mountain and all of the animals, wherever we live, we are relatives. We have a relationship with our human and non-human family. And it's really different when we hold this view that the river is our relative, is our part of our family. And so how would we treat mother nature in a different way if we understood again that we are all relatives and we have this relationship and this reciprocal responsibility to care 
for the life-giving systems, the sacred systems of life. And it reminds me of something that beautiful Maori indigenous elder told me when I was in New Zealand a couple of years ago. I traveled there with a delegation to learn more about how they view rights of nature and how nature needs rights as much as human needs rights. And in the Maori world, they really see the, the Dacha world, as I say, as, as relatives, as, as many indigenous peoples do. And specifically, they were able to generate a law with the New Zealand government around the Wanganui River to recognize the Wanganui River relative as a being that has personhood in essence to have those same rights that people have. And so I went to the river when, with this wonderful elder And when we were there by the river, she said, we have a saying in our culture that I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And she was expressing to me how they not metaphorically or symbolically, but literally see the Wanganui River as their ancestor, that they come from this ancestor and that they are there to attend to and care for the health of their ancestor. And I think it's just such a healthy way to view our natural world because we are all one family. We have evolved from these natural systems biologically. And when we view the natural world as our ancestor, as our relative, it, it completely transforms you know, how we treat the natural environment. It's very interesting because, and we've heard similar kind of stories, Native Americans also, I've heard, I am a tree, the tree is me, and uh, the mythologies overlap. But it's also interesting where they diverge because you think about Genesis and the Bible, and it also begins on a body of water, but in the beginning was the word. And so already you are bringing in a kind of logic or a story um, you know, and then biblical law, it already becomes something a little bit different, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm a lover of words. So let me say that first. But we also need to understand that how we use words and language has a tremendous effect on how we think. And I think that a lot of our words and language have been very influenced by this separation from nature narrative that we see in the Bible as an example. And that influence is very patriarchal, is again, as I say, very separate from nature. There's a lot of language about dominion over nature, that humans are above nature. And this hierarchical perspective of of whether it's patriarchy, men being more important than women, or humans above nature has has been a very deleterious development in the human experiment, if you would. And I think that this is something that we are now seeing the manifestation of in so many of the socio-ecological harms that we're facing, including racism. The fact of this hierarchical structure of white supremacy, I think, is also derived from this idea that we see since you know biblical times of, of uh, there being this one male transcendent God. And I think that has, has created a lot of disconnection from the natural world because it's this transcendent God that's not here embodied in, in the water that we drink and the food that we eat and connected to our bodies. And so again, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to strike out against organized religion. That's not really my point. It's more to look at having a critical analysis of how our language, 
our worldviews, our spiritual understandings, our mindset, our our mainstream culture and the narratives that we hold so deeply affect our own internal well-being as well as how we are interacting with with each other and and with mother earth. Yes, and I'd like to go back a little bit and discuss earth law, which is something at first when people were broaching it I think it took a while for people to accept. It's really so important. And I love what's happened in Ecuador. And I just, even as just a symbol, the idea that nature has a right to exist and thrive, um, even if we don't all, you know, write it into our constitutions. You know, what are your, it, it also there's some, it comes, there's some issues, but it's just so important to think that nature is not an object. It has a right to be. Yes, I've been a part of the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature for for some years now and in other programs that we have at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network that focuses on the rights of nature. And I think it's really important because, you know, basically right now our current legal frameworks view nature as property. And within that legal framework, nature does not really have a place in court of law because it is viewed as property, meaning under human property, and does not have rights of its own. And so I really love this work around rights of nature because it really turns our legal systems upside down and inside out and says, no, you know, nature has its own rights to thrive and grow. The forests and the rivers have a right to be healthy and to carry out their natural functions uh, without human interference or destruction. And we wouldn't really need these rights if people were responsible and had different views about nature, but that's not the case. And so Rights of Nature is promoting and and successfully doing so. It's a really growing movement that nature has rights. And as you mentioned, Ecuador in 2008 became the first country in the world to put Rights of Nature into their constitution. And since then, there's been many, many, many other different Rights of Nature ordinances have been passed in the United States. The Ponca Nation has Rights of Nature in their legal frameworks. Colombia has a Rights of Nature provision for the Amazon rainforest. So around the world, we're seeing how rights of nature is really working to change, really have people understand that that if we don't value on nature other than it being property, meaning the commodification and financialization of nature to be sold and consumed and really the slave to humans, to put it quite simply, that we won't survive. And that the only way that we can change that legally is to have new structures of law, new earth jurisprudence that really recognizes that Nature is a rights-bearing entity. And one of the frameworks, in case people are interested in learning more about this, is the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Nature, which was um, created in 2010 in Cochabamba during a conference with people for that Evo Morales had called together out of one of the failures of one of the climate talk negotiations. And it really provides an underlying foundation for all the work we do around rights of nature. So that's Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth that people can view and learn more about this idea. That sounds amazing. And how do you believe our relationship to nature would change if women were viewed and treated differently globally? Well, I think it's a really good question because one of the things that we highlight in our work, since we we work primarily with women around the world because they are the ones who are most impacted by the climate crisis 
and environmental degradation due to unequal gender norms is that there's a historical relationship between the violence against the earth and violence against women. And this stems from these patriarchal ideologies that we have been living in for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I think when we begin to heal our relationship with nature, we also heal our relationship with women because those two violations have been intertwined for quite some time. And I, I, you know, I've just returned, as I was mentioning to you earlier, from the COP26 negotiations in Glasgow. And I, I think we need to understand these historical relationships and, and how they play out today and, and to realize that they are completely intertwined. As just, just to give a very practical example, at the, the recent climate talks, we can deliver a call to action for women and feminists around the world, representing millions of people outlining in explicit detail a feminist analysis. And when the COP26 leadership was first designed a year ago, it only consisted of men. If you can imagine here in this day and age, uh, when we are going to have the world come together to talk about the biggest crisis of our time, the climate crisis, they had only men at their leadership role in the presidency. And we were uh, able to work with several other organizations to advocate for further women's leadership. And it has, and it did grow, but still, you know, even in these international talks, we see you know, that the percentage of women at the table is quite low still. And without women at the table, we don't have the representation of who needs to be sitting at the table, who's being impacted first and worst, and what their solutions are. Because at the same time that women are impacted first and worst, many United Nations studies, as well as others around the world, actually show we can't get to sustainability without women. You can't actually get to where we want for our future generations, you know, from the heart of ongoing fossil fuel resistance movements in Canada and the United States to struggles to protect the boreal and Amazon and Congo Basin forests and, and hundreds of places in between. Women really do stand on the front lines of global efforts to defend the land and heal our world, you know, in every sector from renewable energy initiatives to fossil fuel divestment campaigns to agroecology. Women are really at the helm working to change humanity's current trajectory. And, and we really need to have their voices and solutions and expertise heard. Yeah, that's definitely true. And speaking of the patriarchal system that's oppressing women globally, the system isn't going to get us out of this situation. So I'd like to know, how can women create more resilient and stronger bonds that would foster healthy community and interchange knowledge and support to better achieve the goals that we're trying to get to? Well, I think that in many ways, women already are doing that. There are so many different women's networks and feminist networks that are so vibrant in countries all over the world. And I, I will say, I would say women and gender diverse relatives, because you know we're talking also about women, but also people across the gender spectrum, because there's a lot of two-spirit and non-binary leaders within our networks as well. So I just want to be really inclusive in that way in this discourse. And I think that one of the ways that we can address the question you asked is for um, 
for people to be engaged in these networks. You know, our network reaches all over the world when we when we do advocacy work, as well as many, many, I could list hundreds of, of women's networks that are so powerful and doing incredible work. As I mentioned earlier, everything from, you know, agroecology to fossil fuel resistance movements to all kinds of solutions around feminist climate policy and fi- feminist economics. So I don't think that there is a lack of solutions that women and female leaders are putting out into the world. I really think it's a matter of interference of the systems that are in existence that are interfering with us doing the work of the people, if you will, of getting on with this just transition to clean renewable energy, of community-led solutions, pushing back against false solutions. So I think it's a matter of participating in these networks and, and realizing that on the one hand, it is a site of struggle, meaning our local struggles wherever we live to present a different worldview that is just and has socially, economically, and racially just solutions. And so there are sites of struggle that we engage in. But I would also add that there are sites of imagination and dreaming and liberation and that we need both. Because having been in this work for a long time, I can tell you, we really need to create balance within ourselves. So we do a lot of fighting, whether it's, you know, going up against corporations or um, financial institutions or their governments to fight back against deforestation or fossil fuel projects in different countries. There's a lot of area for struggle, but we equally need time to sit within these circles and dream about what we want to do and how our liberation looks like and share our imagination and share our creativity so that we can renew ourselves and also ensure that what we're building is not based upon and predicated on these systems of oppression that we've lived within for such a long time. Yes, it's an act of imagination as well. And to celebrate the the human spirit alongside Mother Nature. And so speaking about your creative aspect, uh, you're an artist, a sculptor when you find time. I know your other work takes a lot of your time and you do these monumental sculptures. Just tell us a little bit about those, the symbolism, the mythology behind it, where you, what sparks your creative process? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. You know, people sometimes look at my career arc and wonder how does this all weave together because of working in the field of bronze sculpture for many years and then writing and then being the executive director and founder of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and for me they're all connected because they are the deep exploration of as we were talking about earlier, you know, how do we change a relationship with nature and each other and return and also go forward towards relationships with nature and mother earth that are healthy and just. And so one of the monuments that I created is called the Chima monument, which is dedicated to our connection to the sun and the spirit of life. And how peoples all over the world in ancient times to the present, depending on on different peoples and how they have maintained or not their relationship with their traditional knowledge and, and celebrating those symbols and images that remind us that we are all connected to the the gift giving of the sun and light. I mean, there's no photosynthesis without the sun. There would be no plants. We would not live here. And how do we sort of 
bring a lot of ideas and values in a very grounded way back to earth through the arts and symbols from the arts. And so I did many, many different sculptures that really tell the story of our human relationship to water, our human relationship to the sun or light, as I was mentioning, our human relationship to the plants, our human relationship to the animals. And how do we remember that relationship and show that in symbolic form through through images is, is really what I focused on. And this is also true in, in the books that I'm writing is different explorations on really the root causes of how we got disconnected, but also how we can imagine our way forward in rebuilding these relationships. And it's, it's for me, uh, looking backwards and forwards at the same time, because of course we are, you know, at one time people rooted in the land, even if we have to go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And what can we learn from that ancestral wisdom? And then looking forward, how do we apply those values in a new way, in a new time, and, and sort of create this new tapestry of healthy and just communities? A sort of memories of the future. That's a beautiful way of putting it. So speaking on that interconnectedness that we all share, you once said in a Food First La Peña event, we are Mother Nature's immune system standing up for the web of life. And that phrase really spoke to me and really made me think about how there is an underlying connectedness to all of us and that people will stand up for what is right. Eventually, we will see the change that we're looking for. And just as this extractive system and imperialism is becoming more and more rampant, I think that we can see more radical movements that are coming together and making really impactful changes. So how as individuals can we raise the people's who are on the front lines voices so that their stories can get more representation in the everyday? And how can we support them and help them seek justice? Yeah, I think that it's really important Given this critical moment, I mean, we're in an emergency and I think anything calling it other than that does not serve our purpose. We are in a climate and environmental emergency. We are also in a social crisis given patriarchy, racism, colonial constructs and capitalism. And those systems of oppression are rampant and strong. And yet we as movements are stronger and we need to remember that we are growing and rising, as I was saying, and, uh, as an immune system in response to these oppressive systems that are not only killing people and especially indigenous, black and brown people first and people from island nations and from the global south because of white supremacy and also killing the sacred systems of life that we all depend upon. That said, Mother Earth will continue even if the human species does not. So yes, we do have a duty, I think, to lift up those who are on the front lines and to learn, you know, in your own local region or whatever area calls to you, you know, who are the people on the front lines and how can we stand with them? And of course, a lot of our work at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, we can is focused on just that, you know, uplifting the voices of women on the front lines of the climate crisis. And, you know, what does that look like? It means being very well aware 
here as an example, the United States of the different fossil fuel projects that are going through indigenous lands without their consent. And how do we be good allies to indigenous women leaders who are often the backbone of these movements? So finding out about those and finding out how we can do everything we can to lift up those struggles and support, whether that's, you know, through joining their campaigns, through contacting government, through sending funds, whatever way that we feel we can take a stand, standing on the front lines with them. I have been arrested on several occasions standing for frontline leaders and, and feel like sometimes it's putting our bodies on the line. We need to understand that a lot of um, Indigenous leaders are putting their bodies on the line all over the world, in the Amazon, in Ecuador, and in Brazil, where we work. You know, I'm I'm always very attuned to the women on the front lines there who literally have their lives threatened because of the work that they do to protect the Amazon rainforest, which the whole world depends upon. And so how to learn more about those women and the struggles that they face is really critical to all of us. So I think that the way, you know, you're asking about individually what we can do, I think it's first starts with education about what are frontline women facing in different regions? What are they fighting for? And what can we do to uplift their voices? I think this is a time to center not just women in general, but specific indigenous black and brown and women of color and those who have experienced the worst impacts of the socio-ecological crises that we face. And so we need to really center them as we change these racial and gender negative impacts of our social constructs that it's so important Whose voices are we centering? And we ensure that we're listening to their leadership and their needs and their demands from government and financial institutions and from the world. What, what are their demands and how can we really center their voices in our efforts? Precisely. And I want to ask you so many questions following on from that, because I know you're working with women in uh, forests, you're discussing that. And exactly, how can we give support? Because they can do so much with so little as well. We can learn so much from grassroots organizations. But to go back to uh, some of your recent events, you had the Global Women uh, Assembly for Climate Justice, and you spoke at the UN. And just tell us about that and what gives you hope for the future? Yeah, I'm really excited that just in September this year, we hosted, as you mentioned, the Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice, and we were able to bring together over 100 women and gender diverse leaders from 40 countries to speak for, it was a online six-day event for five hours a day. The recordings are available. It's just a rich resource for anyone who's interested in you know, what is a feminist analysis to facing these many crises we've been talking about? And we covered everything from women in forests to fossil fuel extraction, to feminist economies, to women's funding, to women in the media. I mean, it was quite a range of topics, women in farming and women in food security and sovereignty, indigenous rights as a climate solution. So it was very, very inspiring. And those recordings are available as a resource, a library for people. And from that, there was a lot of new connections made and new projects coming out of, of the work that, that came from that process. And we also created a call to action that we presented at the United Nations right after the assembly. That call to action was also brought to the recent climate talks in Glasgow. We also created an outline for governments and financial institutions about guidelines that they can follow that have a climate justice framework, because it's really imperative 
that we understand that there are many false solutions to the climate crisis that further the agenda of patriarchy, capitalism, colonization, and racism. We can't just assume because governments are working on the climate crisis that they're actually working on solutions that are going to be just or that they're going to work at all. So it's really important that we become educated about what are real solutions and what are false solutions. And we spend a lot of time in this global assembly, as well as in our frameworks that are all on our website. People can look and find um, those documents and those resources there that we really understand and become educated about what is the vision that we want going forward? What does it look like? And what is it not? So that we're, we have a real discerning eye about uh, what solutions look like and, and what our future generations really need and what frontline communities really need. So that is something that um, was very exciting. And then we went on to the climate talks and have just returned, as I mentioned, coming back from Glasgow. My name is Karina Hamoud. I graduated from San Francisco State University with a bachelor's in environmental studies and an emphasis in environmental sustainability and social justice. I'm an associate environmental justice podcast producer and interviewer for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I believe the most crucial aspect to combating the climate and social crisis is understanding that the struggles and oppression that people have been enduring in some cases for centuries are interconnected to the destruction and exploitation of nature. The dominant systems that are responsible for the current social and environmental collapse are rooted in ideologies of hierarchy, patriarchy, colonialism, extractivism, and imperialism. Globally, women and gender-diverse people are at the front lines of the climate and social crisis, and they are disproportionately more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. This is because they are more likely to live in poverty than men, have less access to basic human rights like the ability to move freely in acquired land, and face systemic violence that increases during periods of instability. United Nations figures indicate that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women and girls. Additionally, their role as primary caregivers and providers of food and fuel makes them more vulnerable when flooding and drought occur. However, in this conversation with Osprey Oriel Lake, we see that it is equally important to acknowledge the revolutionary and critical work that indigenous women and gender diverse people have been doing to dismantle these systems of oppression, as well as protect their environment and thereby the planet. We also discuss that although they are the most affected and in danger due to these systems of oppression, they are a fundamental part of the solution to these crises. Keep listening to learn more about how to get involved and support the feminist climate justice movement. Now, back to the interview. There's a growing movement that takes the idea of Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality and connects it to environmentalism. Intersectional environmentalism explains how intersecting identities make people more vulnerable to these systems of oppression and by consequent more vulnerable to environmental issues. So considering these intersecting identities, what do you envision when you think of a world that considers all people's individual and unique needs and rights and what systems and structures come to your mind first in order to achieve that? Well, that's the, the big question of the day, isn't it? So, you know, I think this is what we're all exploring when I was talking about, you know, these sites of struggle and these sites of 
imagination and healing. I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to the root causes of the struggle so that we can identify where the oppressions are coming from and their historical roots, as well as their remedies, while we simultaneously have spaces where we can dream into the future that we want that does have an intersectional lens. And, you know, we know that women experience excessive severity because at a global scale, their basic rights continue to be denied and enforced gender inequality reduces women's physical and economic mobility, their voice and opportunity. And again, as I said, with Indigenous women and women of color impact even more due to racism. So they have that intersection of gender and race to, to navigate as well. And at the same time, you know, we're so many of the women we work with, they say, you know, we're not victims or the solution. And they're right, because what we're seeing is women are implementing models of collective ownership of their forests and seeds and energy systems, and they're working to localize their economies. And so I think that we are seeing, you know, so much of these solutions actually being enacted already. And what happens many times is that a lot of the solutions that we see at a community level are small scale and localized. And as a result, they're not recognized by corporate structures because they're not these big, huge systems that have huge profit margins, which is what we actually want to move away from. So it's actually really quite exciting when we get close to the ground in the local community level, we see people actually having quite a good handle on what they need to have good food and water security. But they don't get funded, they don't get recognized, and they have a lot of interference because they don't fit into the profit idea of our capitalistic and colonized systems. And so I think one of the big things is to see that a lot of the solutions are already there, but how do we navigate the interference that we see from corporate institutions and financial institutions that often interfere with these plans that, that many communities already have in mind for themselves. And I think this is an exciting time though, because you know it's critical to radically imagine a world that is healthy and just, and then invest in that vision, because this envisioning process is equally important to all the other work we do. And I say this because as stability in the current system falters, there's actually time where new ways of thinking, visioning and being can have a considerable impact you know, even ideas and policies that seem too radical before have an opportunity to take hold. It's sort of like in this moment, there can be a crack in the power structures because they're not working. And, and what comes to mind is the poet and musician Leonard Cohen, who said, there's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. And, and I see the pressure and inside of movements that, you know, came out of Standing Rock or Line 3 resistance that just happened, Fridays for Future with the youth, Extinction Rebellion, uh, the Rights of Nature movement, as we were talking, the feminist movements, um, uprisings in the global south and Chile and Ecuador, you know, they're, they're pushing forward a transformative and bold leadership right now because we really don't have the politics in place to tackle these crises. The politics in place are not gonna work. So we have to draw upon the knowledge and leadership of frontline communities who are already deeply engaged in solutions and, and have frontline communities and be able to express these solutions, even though they're under constant stress and increasingly attacked, those solutions are the ones that I think are, are most important right now. 
Yes, and now you have a, a great insight into what works on the local level and also into a global governance or these, you know, transnational gatherings and where we're setting targets anyway, hoping that we meet them. It seems like what the great challenge is how to identify what works locally, scale it up without it losing why it's important locally, because sometimes some things don't scale up. And how do we manage that? We don't want monocultures and these other things. We want it to be completely adaptable. So what are some things that you're seeing that are working locally? And how are you communicating that? Or how might it impact you know, global governance? Well, I think that, you know, just give you one example. So we're not in the abstract of a project that I'm uh, really excited about. We work in the Democratic Republic of Congo where it's one of the one of the most violent countries in the world for women again due to patriarchal constructs and we have combined uh, a program where one there was a lot of deforestation and illegal deforestation going on in the Congo basin in the the DR Congo in particular and we know that the Congo basin and that forest is critical to climate mitigation it's the second largest rainforest in the world next to the Amazon. And these forests are absolutely essential for going to make it through the tiny keyhole we have to get through the climate crisis and keep at 1.5 degrees. So the because of colonization and the disruption of a lot of indigenous people and their traditional ecological knowledge in the area, the, the local community we're working with in the Ntombe region with the leadership of Nima Namandu, who's an amazing woman leader from the region, you know, we were beginning to see that their local forest, Ntombe rainforest, which is in the Congo Basin, was, you know, getting more and more degraded. And so the program that we're engaged in is, one, to protect 1.6 million acres of the Atombe rainforest, while we reforest completely deforested areas that have been damaged for many, many years because of deforestation. So we started a program where women, we have like now 500 women involved in the program, are caring for nurseries, replanting damaged lands. We've been doing this for some years now. So some of the trees are big enough now that the women don't have to go to the old growth forest. They can go to the trees that we've planted for their needs, their, their needs for their homes, for their fires, for their cooking, for their food, for their medicines. And this way, we can ensure that 25% of the trees that we're growing are for human use and care for the local community. And 75% of the trees go back to rewild the, the forest while we simultaneously are protecting 1.6 million acres of old growth forest and changing the social dynamics where the women were really so devalued in their community. They're now seen as, as powerful leaders. They now are having an income for the work that they're doing. They are providing a lot through the forest that they are generating. And so it's also changing the social dynamics for the women in the community, which is very positive. So it's very uh, intersectional, to go back to that word, and very comprehensive in, you know, one, protecting the forest for the world as we fight climate crisis and need climate mitigation through forests, and also helping these women develop a local strategy for their own well-being. We've also, due to the pandemic, in the nurseries provided for a lot of food to be grown to create food sovereignty and food security for the region. So again, it's this very a comprehensive approach that has many different dimensions to it. And it's just one 
version of many, 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 many other groups and many, many, many amazing organizations doing these kind of local projects that have quite an outside result. Speaking of this work that women do, there's a sort of invisible economy where women work for free in caregiver roles, like collecting water or firewood and growing food. What do you think if the government were to give them some kind of compensation for this work that they do and don't get any monetary compensation for now? Yeah, it's, it's a really important point. One of the things I'm really excited about that is there is a global aspect to this, but also just to speak about here in the United States, since we're involved in something called the Feminist Green New Deal Coalition. And just this last year, the coalition put out a research paper that was done by two wonderful researchers, and it is on the care economy and exactly what you're speaking of and how the care economy is a decarbonized economy where a lot of this unpaid, unacknowledged labor of women is centered. And we acknowledge the fact of all the caregiving of children, the caregiving of the elders, or in other countries, it would be, you know, collecting food and uh, collecting water and all of this incredible care work that goes, that, that actually supports the economy and even functioning is recognized and becomes valued. And so we're really excited about this. And if anyone is interested, they can find more about this at the Feminist Green New Deal Coalition, where we, we have released this research paper, as I mentioned, on the care economy and also are beginning to talk to the administration more about how the care economy is a solution to the climate crisis. When we begin to look at other ways of viewing the economy other than GDP and other ways of valuing what is important and understanding that humans have created the values of our economy, it means we can also reinvent what we value in economic structures. And I think this is absolutely essential. And we also have identified that there can't really be a domestic climate policy. Any climate policy must be global because we are all interconnected. And this also goes for the care economy and how we need to care for other regions than our own, other countries in our own. As we're seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's no such thing as just having your own borders and taking care of your own country. You need to, you must have a global approach to resolving the COVID-19 pandemic. And we saw a lot of, you know, actually coming back from the, the climate talks, just looping, looping back around to that for a minute, we saw so much injustice and a, a real problem around vaccine apartheid. And it made it really one of the most unaccessible and you know, climate talks with so much inequity because there was not representation from the global South. So all of these issues are really interconnected and the need to care for everyone and recognize the care economy and recognize that we're not gonna be able to just quote unquote care for our own or not recognize unpaid labor and unacknowledged labor of women that we have to see these systems in a very, very different way. Yes, it really requires so much systemic change. And we're fortunate to have you and your group for your input and resilience into these important questions. And so as you reflect on the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, all the systemic change that's required and education and international politics and how our systems need to adapt to work in greater harmony with nature, what teachers and life lessons have been important to you and what would you like uh, young people to know, preserve and remember? 
I think it's so important for young people to listen to their own inner guidance and know that you have your own inner compass about what you need to be doing and to trust yourself and to recognize as young people, you are born into a very tumultuous moment, both ecologically and socially. And that I think it's important to not shy away from the hard facts about this moment. And at the same time, I draw so much hope and exhilaration and inspiration from young people because I have found their visions of the world that they want to be ones that are very intersectional, comprehensive, and earth-caring and human-caring. And I place a lot of hope in the leadership of the youth. I think that the more that we can actually move leadership to the youth, the faster, the better. And of course, um, that does not mean putting the burden of all of our huge problems on the shoulders of the youth. I, I don't mean that at all, but I do think that the youth have a lot to say and that there needs to be intergenerational mentorship, that the elders have a lot to to share of our knowledge, but I think we have a lot to learn from the youth and centering their voices because they also can sense the emergency of the future that they will live into. And that urgency and that crying out from the youth that we see all over the world is essential to move us at speed and scale. And so I would really put forward the call from the youth and their urgency to these crises as one of the most important things that we can do right now. Well, thank you. You're such a voice of hope and urgency. So thank you, Osprey Oriel Lake at Women's Earth and Climate Action Network uh, for your advocacy for the rights of women and Indigenous peoples, nature and future generations, and helping us understand the power of grassroots movements and how we might harness them to move public policy. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment and adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me here and may we have a future that is healthy for all of us. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Karina Hamoud. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.